All right, let's get to work, everybody. Welcome to End in Mind, Peace of Mind, part two. Uh, this is the second part of our class in the book of Revelation. So part one started in September. It went through the beginning of Advent. This is not, I want to be very clear, because there are actually two parts to the book of Revelation. That's not it at all. But Advent was always going to be in the middle of this class, and so we decided to split it into two pieces, part one and part two. So what we're going to do tonight is two different things. First, I am going to uh, go through an entire review of everything we did in part one in about 45 minutes. Now, I've said 45 minutes in the past, and it's gone for an hour and a half, but I'm really going to make sure this time it's about 45 minutes because after I'm done reviewing what we've looked at over the really the last three months, uh, Pastor Tim is going to come up and give an excursus on the gospel as it appears in Revelation. We want to show you how the gospel shows up periodically through the book of Revelation. This isn't an addition to Revelation. Um, this isn't a tack on. This is actually looking at the book of Revelation and seeing the gospel intentionally woven through the entire book, which I think is pretty cool. So Tim's going to do that in a little while. I'm going to pray for us. And um, rather than sit here and read 16 chapters of the book of Revelation, although that would be thrilling for all of us, um, I'm going to blessed just are those teach. who read it aloud, by the way. So. You're going to what? So blessed are those who read it aloud. So. They do. Yes, it would be a blessing to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and they would bless me right out of this church. Um, but we're going we're gonna to look at this together, um, and I'm going to go through every week and just give a brief synopsis of where we've been, try and wrap up some of the themes, and uh, get us back on track, because it's been the whole Advent season, Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, New Year's, all those things that would make you forget what we've looked at. Also, if this is your first time here tonight, then you've picked a really good week to jump in, because you're going to get a glimpse of what we've been doing this whole time. So I'm really glad that you're here. Let me pray to start us. Um, I hope that you've got one of these papers, because it's going to be helpful for you as we go through the class today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word, for the opportunity of sitting with a, a part of scripture that for so long, for so many people, has been scary or confusing. Maybe it even brings up in us a false sense of pride because we think we understand things. But God, this book continually humbles us. It's a book of blessing, a book of encouragement a reminder that though the church will endure suffering all her days, you are victorious, you are powerful, you are our Savior and our Redeemer. And so, Lord, we stand on that redemption as we study together tonight. We love you. We thank you for this time together, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Let's look together at the book of Revelation, and we're really, we are going to be going chapter 1 through chapter 16 tonight, so hold on tight. The book of Revelation is three things. It is an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a letter. We see this right away in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The old language is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. There are different ways of understanding apocalyptic literature. We spent a bunch of time talking about genre, and I can't really get into it much tonight, so here's the good news. If you missed those opening lectures on genre, 
um, on the different themes that we're going to be looking at throughout the book of Revelation, on dispensationalism and how our approach is going to be completely different than what maybe is in the popular uh, evangelical imagination. Um, if you missed all of that, I can't give all of that to you in two minutes. So I encourage you to go to goodwillchurch.org, click on sermons, scroll down till you get to Wednesday night classes. You might think it's not there. Hit load more if it doesn't load right away. Get to the Wednesday night classes, go to the beginning. Those first couple of weeks really set the stage for all of this. And Apocalypse has different rules for how we read it. We don't read it the same way we would um, any other piece of literature in the Old Testament, but there's a lot, of, um, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of allegory, a lot of metaphor, images that pop up. The use of numbers is always symbolic. So you see that throughout the book of Revelation, this apocalyptic way of writing. It's a genre of writing, just like today we have nonfiction or we have science fiction or we have romance or we have journalistic writing. You would never read a science fiction book the same way you would read a piece of journalistic writing, right? They're two different genres with two different expectations, two different conventions. Apocalypse is its own genre. You don't read it the same way you read some of the rest of biblical history. But it's not just revelation. It's also prophecy, which means there's an ethical expectation attached to it. This isn't necessarily prophecy as in foretelling the future, but it's the prophetic work we see in the Old Testament of the prophets confronting the evil empires of the day with the good news of the kingdom. You see this over and over and over again. At times, there is like prophetic foretelling of the future, but that is incredibly rare in the Old Testament. Prophetic writing means that there is not just information giving, but an exhortation to be transformed in the way that you live, either an encouragement or a warning. We see those all through the book of Revelation. So it's apocalyptic. It is prophetic. It's also a letter. You go down to verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and then he begins what we recognize as a New Testament letter, grace to you and peace from him, and it continues. So the entire book of Revelation then is written to the church of Jesus Christ. We don't leave the church after, verse, after chapter 3 when the letters to the seven churches end. But the letters of the seven churches are like, um, like cover letters for the entire of the book of Revelation. So if you were to go to Thyatira, you would receive your little message along with the messages to these other seven churches, and you would receive the entire book of Revelation addressed to you. It is for the church of Jesus Christ as an encouragement and as a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So it is these three genres that we see throughout the Scriptures, all folded into one book, which is why interpreting the book can be challenging and difficult, but we've done a lot of really good work together over these first couple months in the book of Revelation, and um, I hope that you've seen how the interaction of these three genres together leads to some really cool insights. Now, the book of Revelation begins with a vision. After John greets the churches, he describes himself as a brother and partner in the tribulation. 
Tribulation is a period that begins at the, at the ascension of Jesus Christ and continues on until the second coming of Christ. This entirety of history since the ascension has been called the Tribulation. Because he is a partner in the tribulation. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. There's some of that prophetic language where to endure patiently in this time of suffering and pain. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is the author. We believe he's the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. Same guy who also wrote, we believe, at least the first, if not all three of the letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we, we've read this guy before. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the 12 disciples. And he has been banished to Patmos because he is a follower of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel, and the Roman Empire doesn't know what to do with him. In fact, our tradition tells us that they've even tried to kill the guy, and they have been woefully unsuccessful in killing him, so they finally just send him to this little island called Patmos way out there to just silence the man. He's on the Lord's Day. He's on a Sunday. We know he's, this all happens on a Sunday. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. He turns and he sees the source of this voice, and it is a vision of the glorified Christ. If you remember back to that initial uh, walk through Revelation 1, I challenged you to look at this description of Jesus as perhaps one that should be at the forefront of our minds when we think of Jesus. Think of Jesus as He is. The Jesus that is described here by John is what He looks like right now in glory. This is the glorified Christ displayed to John. Well, who is the Christ who is in heaven interceding before the Father right now? The glorified Christ. What does Jesus look like today on January 4, 2023? On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a, two -edged, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Using apocalyptic imagery, describing the Son of God and Son of Man, one God, fully on display in all of his glory. That's what we see. It's Christ in his glory. John sees him falls dead, but Jesus lovingly says, fear not, and he lifts him up, and then he begins to speak. And Jesus dictates these seven, what I'm calling cover letters, to the seven churches. Now, because it's apocalyptic literature, we know that numbers are symbolic. The number seven signifies completion. So these aren't just seven individual churches, although they were in history, seven individual churches but they represent the entirety of the church throughout the ages and around the world. So, in other words, we don't read this and say, well, that was just to the church in Ephesus, so it doesn't apply. It absolutely applies because while these were real churches with real issues, the fact that there are seven of them, and seven in apocalyptic literature is the number of completion, then these letters are written to the complete church of Jesus Christ 
We're to receive what they have. So the challenges that they have are not just specific to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and the rest, but they are challenges and problems that churches throughout history will have to face. And Jesus speaks a word of encouragement, sometimes a word of challenge to these churches. And this is how he sets up the rest of the book of Revelation. What we see throughout Revelation is some of the themes that are mentioned in these seven letters mentioned again throughout the book. You have the vision, the picture of the vision of Christ mentioned at the beginning of each of these, and then you have themes that carry through. You have the theme of a need to repent because judgment is coming. You have the theme of endurance in the face of suffering. You have the theme of making sure that what you believe is true and not false doctrine. You have the theme of warning that if you are lukewarm in your faith, then it would be better if Jesus would spit you out. And we see, especially in later chapters, lukewarmness throughout. So that's what the seven letters do. They set the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation. Every couple seconds, I'm going to pause because I just did three chapters in five minutes or so. Questions before we keep going. I know I'm covering a lot of ground all at once. All right. If you have a question, raise your hand and interrupt me because I might not see you. Um, after these letters, Jesus brings... John into the throne room of God, and we encounter heavenly worship. We see the glory of the Father. We see the Spirit is there. We see this beautiful picture of the church signified by 24 elders worshiping. Angelic beings who have been created specifically for worship are there crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We are ushered in, before we get into judgment, before we get into the history of the world, before we get into any of that, we're brought into worship. Because everything that takes place in your life, in my life, in the life of our church, everything that takes place is before the throne of God where He is worshiped from age to age by the entirety of the church and by the angelic beings created specifically for that purpose, that they might glorify Him. What's remarkable about this is that Jesus is no longer in the room. The Son of Man isn't there in chapter 4. The second person of the Trinity is missing. When we're in chapter 4, He's in the Spirit. He sees God. He sees the seven spirits of God, the complete Spirit, therefore the Holy Spirit of God. But there is no Son. And then he sees a scroll being handed from the throne. And the scroll is sealed seven times, a complete seal. And a seal works this way. You can only open the seal if you have the authority to do so. And it's sealed with God's seal. So who would have the authority to open the scroll of God? Only God. He holds out the sealed, the sealed scroll and he says, who can open this? And Throughout all of heaven and all of earth, the seas, the skies, everything, no one is found worthy to be able to open the scroll. And I began to weep, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. 
I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John has been suffering with the church. The church has been in suffering, has been in persecution, has been in tribulation ever since the ascension. If this is written about when we think in around the 90 or so A.D., then the church is probably undergoing a pretty severe persecution at this time. Um, we know that they did under Nero. Domitian is on his way, so even if they're not in the midst of the suffering, they're about to be. He's suffering. He's seen Christ. He's heard this message from Christ to give to the churches. He enters into the throne room, and there's a scroll of judgment, a scroll to answer the cry of the church that says, God, will you respond to the suffering that we're facing, and no one can open the scroll? And he weeps. Because I, he, in this moment, I believe, is wondering, was it worth it then? Where is Jesus? This was all for Jesus and he's not here. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, as our intercessor, if you will, between the church and God, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, the Holy Spirit present not just with the Father but also with the Son, total power signified in the seven horns, standing but slain, one who had died but had risen again, this lamb who is also called a lion goes and he takes the scroll. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down in worship. This is a picture of throne room worship that includes the entirety of the created order subjected to the Son, giving Him glory, giving Him worship, giving Him honor. For He was slain and He rose again, and He made a people of the peoples. It's really a beautiful picture that sets the stage for the judgment that is to come. And what we can tend to do with Revelation is we can talk a lot about the judgment, but we can lose sight of the Christ at the center of this. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about Him. 
And so we get this beautiful picture of Christ as he is, the glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. We also get these other pictures, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain. Now, the Lamb, Jesus, begins to open the scroll. And as he does, judgment is poured out on the earth. This is very key. Jesus is directly connected to the judgment that is coming. And so what we don't want to do is get to this idea of, well, God the Father is the one with the wrath, and God the Son is the one with the love. And then, you know, when wrath is poured out, that's the Father. But when love is poured out, that's the Son. No, it is the Lamb who opens the scroll. God, three in one, one in three, He is the one who acts in judgment. The Son of God is intimately involved in the judgment that is about to be poured out. And so that's where we get these different cycles. We've seen the throne room, and now we get seven cycles of judgment, and that's the rest of this book. You know what I should have been doing this whole time? This guy. I had slides. I made them specifically for this class. And I can't get it to even do a st- Oh, I think you needed this. Okay. Well, then we're fine without them. Okay. Now, the book of Revelation is not written in a linear fashion. In other words, it's not chronological. You don't read chapter 6 with the seven seals and say, okay, that happens before chapter 8 with the trumpets, which happens before chapter 12 um, with the histories, which happens before. You don't read it that way. Um, Think of a diamond, right, multifaceted. And as you look at that diamond from different directions, you may see different things about the gem, but it's one gem. We are looking at the entirety of Christian history from different vantage points, different facets, different things are emphasized. But it's recapitulating the same complete judgment, seven. They're all cycles of seven, and it's seven cycles of seven, the complete judgment of God against injustice and sin. That's what we're seeing. And so um, we don't read this in a chronological way, and, and that's important because we don't want to try and map Revelation onto current events. That's not what it's intended for. It's intended to encourage the church to endure through the suffering, endure even through times of judgment while we're here. It's a, it is a message to the church to persevere, and it's not a message of the church to say, hey, figure out when, is gonna, when these things are going to happen or what they're exactly going to look like. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Oh, I should turn it on. Now it's on my end. Hey, there it is. Well, hey, we're doing a review of part one of our class. Did you know that? That's good. All right. We did the heavenly vision. Oh, this is going to take a minute. Here, can you catch us up? Ah, so close. He's a Cowboys fan. That's why he didn't catch that. Um, so <laughs> all right. Let's get into the cycles, shall we? Cycle one is the cycle of the seven seals. Now, we see different horses show up, each bringing judgment with them. We see glimpse, a glimpse of what happens on the earth 
when these spiritual forces are released, but the focus of the seals is on heavenly spiritual realities. You don't get as much of what happens on the ground. You get glimpses of it. You know, there's a, okay, there's going to be a famine and a quart of wheat for denarius, three quarts of barley for denarius, don't harm the oil and the wine. So there's even, um, the, you know, we're going to care about the things that the rich can have, the oil and the wine, but the barley, yeah, don't worry about that, that's just for the poor. Like you get glimpses of what's happening on the earth, but the focus is on the spiritual force that is of released, the spiritual force of judgment released by the Lamb. But it's interesting to me that these are called seven seals, and what we hear in chapter 7 is that the church of Jesus Christ is sealed in the midst of the judgment being poured out, that there is a divine protection for the people of God. He sees six of the seven seals opened, and before we can get to the seventh, before this judgment is complete, we get word of the church. Chapter 7, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sear against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And the seal that we have, because of other New Testament texts, we know the seal is the Holy Spirit Himself, given as as we are sealed for the day of redemption in Christ by the Holy Spirit. You get this picture of the tribes, 144,000 are sealed, and that is a, a way of describing the entirety of the people of God. It's not a literal number, but it's a complete number. And then you get this beautiful vision. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so before we get any further in judgment, we are reminded of the preserving work of God for His church in the midst of tribulation and suffering. If you are, in the first century, part of the church that is suffering under the persecution of Rome, there is no greater news than the news you have not been abandoned by God, but that no matter what suffering you endure in this world, you have been sealed by God for the day of redemption, and He will bring you home. Again, the purpose of the book is to encourage. It is a book of blessing. It is a book that calls to perseverance. So that's the first cycle. We've seen judgment now, the judgment of God against sin, but from a kind of a spiritual vantage point. Then the seventh seal is open and there is silence for half an hour in awe of the way judgment is about to be described. Cycle two, the seven trumpets. Now, these trumpets are not as focused, these judgments not as focused on the things from a 
spiritual perspective, but they're very graphic and material. First angel blew his trumpet, there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. Third of the earth was burned up, third of the trees were burned up, all the grass was burned up. If you read next to each other, the seals and the trumpets, you see that they actually overlap each other, they go together, which just kind of reinforces that this is not a timeline of any kind, but is rather a picture, kind of like a graphic novel, of the judgment of God against sin and injustice. Second angel blows, something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea die. Third angel blows his trumpet, great star falls from heaven, and it, it, the, now you have the, the third of the waters become wormwood. Many people die from the water because it had been made bitter. Now you get the sun struck with the fourth one, with the fifth one. You get this shaft of the bottomless pit is opened up, and you get these suffering because of these scorpions that show up. These, it's, you, you can feel how different this one is. It's very material and painful to read. Like, this is some of the most uncomfortable stuff to read in the entire book of Revelation because you're getting a front row seat to God's judgment against sin and injustice. And throughout, the people of God are present sometimes having to endure these sufferings themselves, sometimes spared. That's why you need to hear, before you get to the graphic description of what this suffering is going to look like, you need to hear that you're being held on to. You need to hear that you're being sealed. Then there's these uh, very mysterious couple of chapters, 10 and 11, that Tim went through with you that I don't want to get too bogged down in. You have um, these two witnesses which signify the work of the church of witnessing in the midst of persecution, in the face of persecution, even to the point of martyrdom. You have John's commissioning to go and make sure he reports. You have this really strange little mention of seven thunders. John hears seven thunders that include the judgments of God, and he's told, don't write that part down. All the rest of it you can write down, that you don't get to tell anybody, which means even what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is only a glimpse, only a glimpse of what God is doing. And then we have the seventh trumpet blown. God's temple in heaven is opened. Ark of the Covenant is seen. There's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, and we enter into history. So, we've come from heaven to the earth, and now we're going to look at history through the seven… The guy with the thing just left. He has the thing. Just go to the next slide. We're good. Tim's not doing his job. Killing me. I got 10 minutes. I think I might actually get this done. One of the central chapters in the book of Revelation is chapter 12. As I've studied through the book of Revelation, I've found chapter 12 to be one of the most important, if not the most important in the entire book. Um, it is the pulling back of the veil and the spiritual warfare that is taking place that the church is living through right now. There's a great sign that appears in heaven. So, John is given this picture like in the stars where he sees this play out in front of him. There's a woman. She signifies the people of God. She's pregnant. 
She gives birth to a child. That child, of course, is the Christ. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But here's what's amazing. As she's in labor, a dragon is standing before her waiting to devour the child. Who is this dragon? Well, according to the book of Revelation, in verse 9, he is that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So that serpent from Genesis 3 who tricked Adam and Eve, led them into sin, that was Satan himself. Satan appears here as well. But something miraculous takes place. The child is born. The child is Christ. It's Jesus. This is the birth of Jesus Christ. And at the birth of Jesus Christ, war breaks out in heaven. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. People wondered, when is, Jesus, when is Satan kind of booted out of heaven? Well, this seems to indicate that this takes place in the Christ event, his birth, but also then his death and resurrection as the victory point where the devil is defeated and cast down to earth. Because here's, what is, here's the picture. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his church have come, and, sorry, the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And here's how he was defeated, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The death of Jesus Christ was the defeat of Satan. And it was in his death and resurrection that Satan and his demons are cast out of heaven. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He has been defeated, he has been kicked out of heaven, and yet he is now on the earth seeking to devour those who he can destroy. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time and times and half a times. And then you get to see for the rest of this chapter that the focus of the dragon and this counterfeit trinity that appears in upcoming chapters with a beast and a false prophet their objective is to destroy the woman, the people of God. Christ came from the people of God, the nation of Israel, and Christ has been rescued. He's been taken up. He's been resurrected and ascended. The devil could not destroy him, but in fact was defeated by him. And in his rage at his defeat before Christ, he decides to war against the bride of Christ. And now the church lives in the wilderness. This is where we live today. This is where we will live for all of time until Christ returns and the final day commences. We live in the wilderness with a foe who seeks to destroy us. But that foe has been defeated. And that's why chapter 12 is the centerpiece of Revelation. 
it is important that we understand that while there is an enemy and while he is dangerous, he's been defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ, that the resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection and that we will be taken care of. She is nourished by God for a time, times, and half a time. Then you get these other two beasts who come up, and you get this counterfeit trinity, which is something we talked about. as one of the themes of the book of Revelation. It's a, the devil does counterfeit acts that are similar to the acts of God, but actually are a mocking of the things of God. You hear a message for the three angels. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You, you get these, these things that we're going to flesh out in much more detail in upcoming chapters about Babylon specifically. That's next week. You get these seven histories, these seven pictures of God's wrath and God's mercy for His children throughout history. You get these seven pictures of it. And then you get seven angels with seven plagues. These are the bulls of God's wrath. And the plagues are plays off of the Exodus motif. Exodus is very important in the book of Revelation. It's the background of a lot of this. And these bulls are very similar. This is cycle four now. These seven bulls are very similar to the seven trumpets. They're just more intense. There's an intensification that we see as the cycles go and as we get a repeated picture of God's work in history. As that repeats in cycles throughout the book of Revelation, they get more and more intense. And what's remarkable about this cycle is it actually ends in the final day. The seventh angel poured out his bowl. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is finished. Overlap between the cross and the final day. And there were light, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. It is a picture of the ultimate eschatological wrath of God against sin. It has been poured out only one time before, and that was on Christ on the cross. He bore the fullness of God's wrath. He drank that very same cup for us. He experienced the fullness of God's wrath, and then it is no longer something we must worry about as followers of Jesus Christ. In this world, we may know suffering, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Full eschatological wrath poured out on the earth on the final day, which brings us to the end of this cycle. We'll be in cycle five next time. But I, I want to mention something. It's a book filled with wrath and judgment. And I keep saying it's for the encouragement of the saints, which may feel strange. Like, how is that encouraging? There's lots of blood and fire and hailstones, the size of houses. Like, how is this encouraging? 
We have a uh, confession of faith that we hold to in at Goodwill Church. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is part of our denomination's constitution. It's part of our constitution. It's something that Tim and I as pastors have to stand before all of our peers who are pastors and elders and say, we affirm, not just affirm, but we promote the Westminster, Standard of, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism as a faithful distillation or summary of the system of doctrine found in the Scriptures. In other words, we believe that these are not the Scriptures. They are subordinate. They are less than the Scriptures, but that they helpfully summarize for us what the Scriptures teach. And here's what the Westminster Standards say, the Confession of Faith in chapter 33. Christ wants us to be completely convinced that there is going to be a day of judgment. As a deterrent to sin for everyone and as an added consolation for the godly in their suffering. I'll come back to that in a second. He's also made sure that no one knows when that day will be, so that we may never rest secure in our worldly surroundings. But not knowing what hour the Lord will come, we must always be alert and must always be ready to say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. We are told these details as a deterrent to sin. The, the judgment of God is wrath poured out on sin. And as we continue through, and, and if you were here this past weekend, you, you were with us as we talked about this great white throne judgment where all people, great and small, are before the Lord, and we um, are judged according to what we had done. And salvation was only for those whose name was written in the book of life. It is supposed to keep us from sinning. This is judgment against sin, and it is graphically described that we might flee from temptation. But it is also given to us as an added consolation for the godly in their suffering. And that is all over the place in Revelation. I know you're suffering. I know. I know the tribulation you are facing, church. But I am with you. And I see you. And I hear what you're going through and I will respond with my justice. There will be judgment on sin and injustice. And if you were not saved by me, you would be a recipient of it as well. Because you were in Christ, sealed, this judgment is not for you, but instead you receive mercy and grace and love. This is the story of the book of Revelation story of God's judgment poured on the earth against sin and wickedness, but the salvation of His people. And this is to encourage us and to bless us. Now, there may be a lot of things that you have questions about, um, and you're more than welcome to ask, but I have a question for you before you come back to us with questions. For those of you especially who've been through most of this class with us, what has changed about your understanding of the book of Revelation up to this point? Maybe you came from a background like I did that believed in a rapture and believed in the tribulation and those kinds of things, and, you know, we've taught explicitly not that. So maybe that's been very different. Maybe you've changed your view on that as well. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. Or maybe there's ways of approaching the book of Revelation. You're like, oh, I never thought about cycles, and that's really interesting. Just talk at your tables. How has your understanding of the book changed up to this point? 
Maybe there's some really good news of like, I feel like I can read this thing. I'm not scared of this book anymore. Share that with your table. Give you a few minutes to talk together, and then you can ask us some questions, and then Tim's got a really cool excursus for us. <laughs> All right. No. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I hope you enjoyed your nightly dose of fire hose tonight as I hit you with 16 chapters of the book of Revelation in 45 minutes. That was a lot, I know. Um, I want to give a few minutes for any questions, any clarifying things. Um, if, if, if I need more time than I can give, I'll say right after. I'll, I'm here for a bit. I can answer more. But go ahead, Bill. Mm-hmm. Because in the book of Revelation, Israel and the church are not distinct. It is the people of God. And the only reason why we make any distinction between Israel and the church in chapter 12 is because the birth of the child takes place in there. So it gives us a little bit of a before and after, but it's the same woman because it's the same people of God. Um, we do not believe there's any difference between Israel and the church, but we're one people, one program of redemption and salvation. And so in chapter 12... She doesn't change. She's given birth. The child is, is there. She's no longer pregnant as Israel is pregnant with Messiah, right? No longer pregnant, suffering in the wilderness as the church is often described as suffering in the wilderness, as the people of Israel even suffered in the wilderness. Um, but it's, it's one people, Jew and Gentile together. Um, and that is an overwhelming uh, message in the New Testament that we are now one people. So there is, um, I know that in, in some tr traditions, there is a distinction between Israel and the church. In our tradition, there's not. We are one people. So that, that'll answer that. I, I use it interchangeably dependent on where we are. we before the birth of the child or after the birth of the child? It's Israel, it's the church, but it's one woman, the people. She represents the people of God. So I hope that answers. Okay. Great question. Thank you. Any other question? Yes. Yeah. So, they're different, but they're not. Here's, here's what I mean. The seals on the scroll, they demonstrate, this is my scroll. I can open this. No one else does. That's why when the first person of the Trinity seals it, it requires a second person of the Trinity to be able to open it. God must open what God has sealed, right? So, it denotes um, ownership and authority. What does the seal on the foreheads of the saved do? Ownership, authority. And no one can unseal us. There is no one with the power to unseal us because we have been sealed by the Spirit. It is a, it, God has sealed us as His people. And so while the picture is different, right, a seal on the forehead and a seal on the scroll, the function of the seal is the same. It's to say, these are my people. I have the authority alone to remove this seal. And then we receive the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. There is nothing that can take you out of my Father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. All these other New Testament verses start flooding in. So, so that hopefully that gives a little bit of connection there. That's a great question. Thank you. I think uh, it also reminds me of covenant language. 
because when we speak about uh, the signs of the covenants, baptism and Lord's Supper, we describe them as signs and seals yeah. of the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they are outward signs or visible signs of that which is sealed in us as the people of God. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. magically, don't misread that, but just, you know, the, what they mean. So. It's not like an Alakazam thing going on? You just all wound up tonight, aren't you? Alakazam. I got good sleep last night. Mm-hmm. Now I'm drinking coffee at 7.30 at night, so I'm really ready to go now. Yeah. Let's go. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, we are here after. Um, it's always a wonder which one of us is going to be here longer after the class, but we are here after the class to talk if there are more questions, particularly like if this is your first night with us, I know. I just, like if it was review, it was a lot. If it was your first time, I apologize for what I just did to you for those 45 <laughs> minutes. That was brutal. Um, but Tim has a really cool excursus, and I'm going to now uh, hand things over to him, and this is his ball game. Okay, so I have, uh, I really kind of want to make a comment about the Dallas Cowboys, the yeah. crack you made, they're not cool. What? <laughs> but if I did it, I would be digressing. Oh wait, that's what I'm supposed to do, it's an excursus. It's I'm an excursus, digress- it's a digression, but <laughs> academic-like. <laughs> yeah. Academic-like, that's a very academic like way of putting it. It's academic-like. It's an excursus. <laughs> okay, anyway. So, Marcos gave you a review of Revelation up until the point uh, where we left off when we entered into Advent, and what I want to do is talk to you about where we see the gospel in the book of Revelation, and I really want to do that because, well, Revelation has a history of being interpreted differently in a lot of ways or seen or perceived differently than the rest of Scripture. One of the things we did in week one was to talk about how it is that we want to see Re- Revelation falling under the same category as the rest of Scripture that is profitable for teaching and proof, reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Um, and so, in one sense, it is right for us to say that we see the gospel in every book of the Bible. It's not newly introduced in the New Testament. Every book of the Bible is bringing the gospel about. In fact, we, we sometimes refer to the first uh, expression of the gospel as coming from Genesis 3. In the wake of the fall and God's curse in the fall, there is the gift and the blessing of the gospel that comes out of Genesis 3. And so we see that unfolded throughout redemptive history, all throughout the Old Testament, and then, of course, um, in a much more pronounced way um, in the coming of Jesus Christ. Concerning the book of Revelation, as Pastor Marcus has pointed out and that we've been teaching all along, this is a book that we have been teaching uh, to interpret through what we call a cyclical lens, the cycles, as we've been talking about them a lot. We take that traditional view as Revelation is not a chronology or a timeline per se, but consists of these seven cycles that depict God's actions of judgment against the wicked and reward for His people, His saints. And so what I want to do is, is to take some time to look at how we see the gospel in the book of Revelation in particular. And I want to begin by reiterating a point that I also, that another point that I made at the very beginning of our study, and that is that Revelation, even though it is a book of blood and fire and wrath and everything else, as Marcos has pointed out to you, it's often, some, it's often been called a book of blessing as well. And it's something that I made point of before, uh, that it is a book of blessing, and we make an effort, we have been doing it all along, every week, to, to demonstrate where we see blessing uh, throughout 
uh, the book of Revelation uh, to make good on the opening words of the book. In chapter 1, verse 3, we read these words, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, not surprisingly, uh, using symbolism, numbers of symbolism, there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. So, a completion of blessings. It is completely blessed. Uh, we see it in chapter 1, verse 3, and then just quickly, I want to give them to you. We, there's a, a long gap, and then when we get to 14, chapter 14, we read these words in verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Two chapters later, in chapter 16, we read these words in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed, be seen as exposed. A few chapters after that, in chapter 19, we read this. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the married, marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, I'm sorry, 1919. My apologies. So 14, 13, 16, 15, 19, 9, and then 19 verse, chapter 19, verse 9, and then chapter 20, verse 6, says this, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In chapter 22, we get the last of the seven, verse, verse 7 of chapter 22. So 22, verse 7 says this, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the, props, of the prophecy of this book. So a bookend to the beginning of the book. And then in 14, so chapter 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And so we, can, we see here seven blessings our completion of blessings. And when we consider the gospel, it seems kind of a given, I would assume, that the blessings of God are inherently linked to the gospel, right? That's safe to say. So where is the gospel itself in Revelation? Well, first, it's in these blessings. And of course, being that there are seven of them, as I said before, this is a, 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 a conveying of the completeness of blessing. The blessings of God, and specifically I have in mind here, the eternal blessings of God are clearly the fruit of the gospel. But one way for us to consider the question of what the gospel is, as we're beginning to look for it in the book of Revelation, is to observe both the, the what of the gospel, that is what it provides, what it accomplishes for us, and the who of the gospel, that is who provides it. The who part gives us some rather profound clarity with regard to the question of where we find the gospel in the book of Revelation. Now, of course, the who is Jesus, and we need not search very long to find him. In fact, the very first words that John writes down, even before the blessing of chapter 1, verse 3, states that the book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The very first words John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the who of the gospel is the one for which the entire, the entire revelation belongs, Jesus. But maybe you've noticed 
Now, verse 1 also mentions God the Father, and so the who is immediately given an all-important point of clarification, and that is that Jesus, it's Jesus, but more specifically, the who is the entirety of the Trinity, the whole of the triune God. To state it much more clearly, in the verses immediately following the blessing in verse 3, we read in verses 4 and 5, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. So there we see the eternity of God from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And we talked about that when we were first introduced to it, that seven being another completion sees the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And so we have the, the, all of the Trinity here. And then it says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So we see the who, the person of God in the triune God, who he is, and then what he's done. He's loved us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. That's pretty gospel. I hope we see that, right? And notice here that this is not only the who clarifies the triune God, but the what, as I said. The what is what's accomplished. God's love for us and his dying on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. But there's more. John continues after saying that to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he writes these words. He says, and made us a kingdom. So here's more of the accomplishments of the gospel. Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he is coming on the clouds. This talks about his return, his second coming. Also a component of the gospel and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So there's a clear declaration of his atoning work. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. And I am the Alpha and the Omega, it says, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. More of a declaration of the person of the Trinity. Now that's a lot to consider, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep in mind, we're still only in chapter 1. We're not even through chapter 1, and what we get in what remains of chapter 1 is rather striking and profound. Pastor Marcos made reference to it. We get the single most detailed description of the who of the gospel in the fullness of His glory. We get the vision of the Son of Man, of the glorified Christ. What must have been both terrifying to John and awesome to him in that vision But woven into these verses is also some of what the who, that is, what the gospel has accomplished for us, right? The what, I should say. Fear not, we read in verse uh, 17 and 18 of chapter 1. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. So death and resurrection are clearly stated here. Clearly, this is foundation of the gospel. This is the work of Christ in his death and his resurrection. Now, that's a lot of gospel there in chapter 1. But what follows in chapters 2 and 3 is, well, more gospel. The who writes the letters to the churches, to us. And those letters that Pastor Marcos talked about in chapters 2 and 3 both commend the church but also condemn in many ways. There's judgment and there's encouragement which comes from our Savior. But they also include calls to repentance and promise of eternal reward, both of which are critical aspects of the gospel. 
When the gospel is delivered, what do we get from the gospel? Repent and believe. So calls to repentance are central to the gospel, and we see them throughout these letters. From there, we're taken to the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5. And in the throne room, there is singing. In other words, there's worship offered to God, and we need to see that our ability to see God for who He is and therefore offer worship to Him is solely due to the atoning work of Jesus applied to us by the Holy Spirit, or to put it another way, by the work of the gospel. You can't worship God unless God the Holy Spirit has applied the atoning work of God the Son to you, thereby opening your eyes to see God for who He is. I sometimes say it this way, you need God to see God, <laughs> right? To open up your sinful eyes. And so we want to see that as that. That's what we see in the, in, the, in the throne room. In those passages in that chapter, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. He's called the Root of David. But we also read these words, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Clearly, more of both the who of the gospel and the what of the gospel is in that. That statement is followed by the only appropriate response. So we see the Lamb standing as though slain, the death resurrection of, of Christ as the Lamb of God, and the response in the rest of chapters 4 and 5 is more worship. The only appropriate response. The gospel does its work in us so that we have eyes to see the work of what Jesus does and the person of our triune God, who He is, and we respond in worship. You don't worship God if you're not saved by Him. Now that takes us to the cycles, and we're going to look at them very briefly. Marcos just kind of inundated you with a lot of cycle information, so I won't do it again for you, but I really want to give you a short uh, just look at how we see uh, the, the gospel presented in the four cycles that we've been through thus far, and so we want to move to consider the gospels as they're seen in them, and we begin by noting, as we learn from the throne room verses, that only Jesus is the one worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, and so right away we note that in the person of Jesus resides worthiness. And second, we note that the one who is worthy is described as the Lamb, again, which speaks to the action of the gospel, the Lamb of God slain and risen from the dead. More gospel there. And in this setting, we first see the four horses and their riders executing judgment of God against the wicked and throughout, uh, and, and the, and throughout the entirety of the created order, by the way. And then we see with the fifth seal, we get this interlude, which speaks of the martyred saints under the altar, and we're told that they had been slain for the word of God and for their witness, and we're told that they are told that they have to wait a little longer. Suffering is part of the charge of the gospel. It speaks to the believers who suffer for the gospel. They're dressed in white robes, and that white speaks to the purity of them, but not so much purity that they have earned, but that's demonstrated through their faithfulness. They're clothed in Christ, clothed in His righteousness, which is language we see in many other places in Scripture. And then we're brought to the first 
cycles end, which describes uh, in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 6, uh, the second coming. So an interesting way to consider the, the, the cyclical interpretation is to see that we see these, these increasingly clear, increasingly pronounced uh, recapitulations of the second coming. We get that here in those verses 12 through 17 in chapter 6, followed by silence in heaven, awe in the presence of the Savior. The second cycle, chapters, chapter 8, 1 or excuse me, chapter 8, verses, verses 2 through chapter 11, 19. The trumpets, and again, Marcos has talked about these. I just want to sort of draw your attention to the gospel component that's woven into that. One of the things that we see in the trumpets is the mention of the prayers of the saints. This is part of what we call in our tradition the means of grace, the, the means of accessing the grace of God. We get them in Acts 2.42. We get... You know, fellowship and the breaking of bread and, and the apostolic teaching and the prayers. Prayer is a gift of God to access the grace of God, and that's part of the gospel. Prayer is a, breath, a blessing as a result of the gospel that enables us to commune with God, to lift up others in the body. But when we look specifically at the trumpets, one of the things that we see, and Marcos mentioned it, is as a number of parallels to the plagues of Egypt. And of course, what is what occurs in, uh, during the plagues of Egypt? What is that in the Old Testament? That is the Old Testament's most ex explicit declaration of God's deliverance of His people. Gospel, right? God delivers His people in the Old Testament from slavery in Egypt and of course, this depiction in the end is drawing our attention to the spiritual deliverance of, of, of spiritual bondage that we are in now, that Jesus, that God through Jesus delivers us from, which is, say it with me. Well, you want to share some of your coffee? <laughs> I know. Okay. I wasn't even asking for an amen. I was asking for the gospel. You're all looking at me like, what's the answer? Is it, is it Jesus? <laughs> That's a safe one, right? What we see in the end of the cycle is a second recapitulation of the second coming. By the way, this is, this is something that we drew out uh, early on. God is described as one who is and was and who is to come. And so the, 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 the first advent, at which we just celebrated, and then the anticipation of the second advent are also key components of the gospel. You and I, as recipients of the gospel, wait with great heavenly expectation. We await the second coming. It's central to the gospel. He comes again to gather his bride, to gather his people to himself. And that's why the, the cycle, see this recapitulation, always ending with an increasingly uh, clarified uh, picture of the second coming, both in judgment and in the gathering of his people. We see in the third cycle uh, something that we've, we both have talked about and talked with you about that's a little bit of a clunky title in the commentary we're using, seven histories, seven great signs. There's a number of titles. Don't worry about the title. This is the third cycle. And we see uh, the ascension of Christ here. 
We read this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who Marcos uh, talked about and Bill asked questions about, who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, right? So this is a picture of the ascension of Christ, also key to the gospel. All the activities of Christ are key to the gospel. His, uh, his eternal state, his pre-incarnate state, the, the work he does in his pre-incarnate state, his incarnation, his sinless life, his full devotion to the law, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension in heaven, his, his, his seating at the right hand of the Father, his second coming, his eternal reign, all of those things have expression and connection to the gospel. We're told that a war arose in heaven. A great dragon was thrown down, which we read in the following words. We read that. Marcos read it to you. Let me just do it again real quickly. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. That's a pretty gospel statement, by the way. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And that clearly is a declaration of the gospel. How do we conquer the enemy as Marco spent some time talking about? The shed blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Very much gospel there. When we talked about this, when we were in chapter 12, one of the things that we talked about was it says this, and they conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death, which was a real challenge, a charge to us to see what parts of our life do we love more than the, than the gospel and the Lord Jesus. Therefore, we read in verse 12, Rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to you on earth. And see, for the devil has come down you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Clearly, as a whole, this is a strong gospel declaration. And yet, it is followed by more judgment against the earth dwellers, those whose names are not written in the book of the life of, life of the Lamb, which is both another judgment reference but also part of the gospel declaration that we see throughout Scripture because we see uh, reference to the book of the Lamb in a number of places. We saw it this past Sunday, later on in Revelation. We, saw it, we see it in the book of Philippians, for example. There's a number of different places. And so we see that. There's a reference to the who of the gospel as the Lamb, the what of the gospel is what the Lamb does, atoning for our sins. So again, we see reiteration uh, of the gospel here. And then we read this. We read a, a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Something that's echoed a second time later in chapter 14. It says this, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors 
for their deeds follow him. So here we see the place where those blessings, one of those seven blessings come to bear. And this clarion call for endurance talks about suffering in the here and now. The endurance of, and faith of the saints clearly is, is gospel-oriented. Part of the gospel is what God promises his people, not simply forgiveness, though that is of central importance, but the gift of eternal life. And not just eternal life, but eternal life in his manifest presence. And that's immediately followed by yet another recapitulation of the second coming in verses 14 through 20 of chapter 14. This one is given to us with the imagery of harvest in mind, one unto reward and another unto judgment the grape harvest and the blood, lots of blood, 1,600 stadia, very daunting picture. And then lastly, we have the seven bulls again, and then this fourth cycle uh, takes us up to where we left off before uh, Advent. We get another glimpse of heaven. We see more worshiping of God, more singing. In fact, we're told that they sing two songs here, the song of Moses, and we want to remember the Old Testament de depiction of deliverance uh, with Moses in Egypt. And then, of course, we're also told the second song is the song of the Lamb. And after this, we see the seven bowls of God's wrath, judgment. But as with the other cycles, we end with another recapitulation of the second coming in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 16. And here we read these words, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Or as Marco said when he cited it, it is finished. And he made the point, you were stealing my material then just by the way, just uh, he made the point, clearly a reference to Jesus on the cross, the atoning work of the gospel, it is finished. You got some? You're almost done. I, I am almost done, yeah. I should have done that to you. I should have just stood by you. you know, just. Very attentive, just <laughs> listening to every word. By the way, I was working really hard to give you the slides, I but it wasn't working. It. Well, I don't know, yeah. No problem. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to say to you. So that, so that, is, that is it, since you've just you know, kind of come up and just spoiled it all for me. I did not. <laughs> so that's, that just leads us up through the four cycles. We have them more, and you know, I could give you pictures of the gospel in the next cycles, but then you wouldn't come back. Yeah. So I have to give you Can't more reasons to come back. And so we'll see gospel as well as we see the other imagery that, that uh, the Revelation teaches us in the, in the last of the, of the three cycles, the last three of the seven cycles, and then the closing part, which well, is New Jerusalem, by the way, where there's yeah. no sin. So I look forward to that. So that, give, that, questions? that brings us to the end. So that's, that's why I came up, because I wanted to give a quick preview of where we're going um, this class will be done on February 1st. That is our last time together. Um, there are three cycles left, um, three more cycles of judgment, and then the coming of the New Jerusalem, the second coming of Christ, the eternal state, all of that. Uh, we still have to talk about Babylon. We still have to talk. Am I on? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Good. I didn't. It's on. I, you're louder than me is all. I don't, it's normal. It's just not normal. And, <laughs> And uh, so we have Babylon to come. We have the millennium to come. So we get into all the questions of what is the millennium and, you know. 
I'll sneak enjoy. peek. We're all millennialists, so you can all yell at us for the next, uh, for that class when we get there. Um, <laughs> we're going to get to the final destruction of evil um, that we talked about this past Sunday. We're going to get into the return of Christ and the new Jerusalem. So all of that is to come in the next four weeks after this. And so I hope that you are back. It will be much slower than what you just experienced here. Instead of 16 chapters at a time, you're going to get like one or two chapters at a time to bring us through to the end. So um, thank you for coming. Any questions for us before we say goodnight? It is currently, that clock is fast, 7.56. So we have four minutes before I have to release you to get your children, and then we're both here. Questions? Nothing. Just silence. Do it. I know you have them. I wasn't going to. I was going to Go for it. You or me? <laughs> I mean, I can, I can go, go right ahead. Okay. You got it. I just, I didn't know. I mean, it's, no, it's your. So, I, I, best answer I can give you is to come back to Revelation two and and look at some of the details here. You say I am rich. So this is the lukewarm Christian. You say I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So there we see a trust in your own ability, in your own wealth, in your own ingenuity, and not a trust in Christ. Right? So, um, you know, broadly, probably too simplistically, materialism and a, a chasing after the things of this world rather than the things of Christ. Um, because I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments, it's righteousness, so that you might be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They are so consumed with the things of this world that they've stopped being able to see Christ and what He's doing through His kingdom. So I think in this context, um, it is a church that is very, very comfortable in their material wealth mm -hmm. and um, very, very comfortable in their social standing and are relying on that rather than on Christ. And Jesus is looking at that and going, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That's nonsense. So I think there's… Right, there's self-sufficiency. Yeah. Right. This is a warning. This is a warning. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. it, I, I'm vaguely remembering when we went through it, there's also these unique references to the garments 
and to the salve for the eyes speaks to uh, this, this is Laodicea, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that, that speaks to some of the specific bits of ingenuity that they had. They were a textile city, and they actually had uh, some ancient medicinal practices. Um, so, that, so, that, so they were known for that. So what, what are you known for relying on instead of God, right? So you, you know, plug in your specific thing. So the, this, this would, um, I'll just, I'll, I'll be the guy. This would apply, I think, broadly to the American church. I think they could all apply to the American church, but a reliance on materialism, on comfort, on social standing is one of our um, particular tripping points um, that you don't necessarily have in other places. They have other tripping points, um, but this is one that I think we should be especially careful of. But to, to make the point before, we can observe that, and you're right to point that out, but that's kind of the point. It's our tripping point, but it's also the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really intentional about seeing the tripping points. When you're in it, you don't tend to see it. That's why I think, you know, when yeah. Jesus charges the church at Laodicea, he's using imagery that's very specific to their shortcomings, not just generically, right? Yeah. Where do we see it? Right? So it's, it's useful to think of it that one way. One more question. It's 8 o'clock. If you have to run, I get it. But one more question, then I'll pray. Why are the Jews called the chosen people? Um, very simplistically, because they are the ones that God has chosen to bring His Messiah through. Um, he, he did, but that covenant then expands in Christ to include the Gentiles. So it's not that the covenant ends. It's that the covenant that is made with the people of Israel, the covenant of grace, expands through Christ to welcome in the nations. They are included, but it's not, it's, um, yes, we have right. now been included through Christ. Yeah. Yes, you're brought in. Right? Yeah. The wild olive branch, to use Paul's language in, in Romans. So they were, they were chosen by God, not because of who they were, not because of their power. He said, because of my love, I've chosen you. Right. Um, and it is through them that he chose to bring his Messiah that would then bring salvation to the nations. So, I, th There's more to it, but like that's the, it is the core of, of it. But it is yeah. that simple yeah. in, in yeah. some ways. I mean, you know, in heaven there's no Jew, no Gentile, right? That's what Paul right. says in, in Galatians, right? Neither Jew nor Gentile, right? That, that distinction yeah. doesn't exist in the one people of God, right? Yeah. So it's a nation made Israel of nations, the church, right? It's one people of God, Jew, Gentile, church, Israel. So. All right. So. Um, let me pray to close because I know some of you have to go, um, but we are here to talk more if you'd like. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. And Lord, while that was a lot all at once, uh, we pray that you would use it to, to spur us on, to encourage us, to bless us, to help us to persevere or whatever suffering people may be enduring right now in their own lives, I pray that this would be a source of comfort and blessing for them, mm. to know that you're with them, that you stand among the lampstands. You are with your church in their suffering, that you nourish us in our suffering, that you protect us from the evil one, and that you will bring us to the day of completion, where you will return and we will be with you in the new heavens and new earth forever. We look forward to that day. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you next week.